Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Pushkin. This show contains adult language and occasional descriptions of violence. Please keep that in mind when choosing when and where to listen. Previously on Death of an Artist. So the best way to protect him was to respect his wish for silence. I would say. And also to take him at his word. I couldn't establish that she wanted to get a divorce. She feared his reaction. And I couldn't talk about any of that. How can it be that there can be so many curators in these institutions and one curator can't say, I'm uncomfortable with that show? This is Press Play. I'm Madeline Brand. Let's talk now about some bad news that's hit a couple of local museums. MoCA downtown has fired its chief curator, Helen Molesworth. To talk about these stories, we have Carolina Miranda with us. She writes the Culture High and Low column for the LA Times. I think she was an important get for Los Angeles at the curatorial level. And a scholar who was really devoted to rewriting the history of art in the sense of making sure that it was more inclusive of women in particular. She's a feminist art historian, as well as people of color. Helen was very dedicated to the idea that part of her job was to look at what had been overlooked. Well, that's me they're talking about on the local radio station everyone I know listens to. To be honest, I still find it embarrassing. I started working in junior high school. I've always had a job. And I mean like a job job. Anyway, as you can tell, I got fired. And if that wasn't bad enough, I got fired very publicly. Like New York Times coverage publicly. Okay, so apparently uh, Helen Molesworth clashed with the director of MOCA. What were the disagreements about? 
I think some of it came up last month when the artist Mark Grochon, who was scheduled to be honored at the gala, ended up withdrawing his name from the gala, saying that what Mocha really needed to do was be honoring somebody else, that he would have represented the third white male artist, uh, straight white male artist in a row that the museum was honoring. And as part of that news, the board member Larry Pittman ended up resigning from the board. And Larry is a part Colombian painter. He's Latino. He is also gay. He came out in the 1970s and he said that he felt that the museum was not really as devoted to issues of inclusion and diversity as they might be paying lip service to. The mission of a museum is fundamentally twofold. To educate the public about art and to decide what art is good enough to be saved in perpetuity. This is a nice way of saying that part of what a museum does is decide why some art is better than other art, why some art is considered great, so great that it's worth the time, money, and energy it takes to display, interpret, and save it. Anna's story made me realize how much DNA museums share with courts of law. Both are institutions where the basic rules were written centuries ago, and both have been historically run by highly educated, affluent white men, experts who come together to decide upon the merits of this, that, or the other piece of evidence. In museums, this work is done by curators. In the justice system, it is done by lawyers and judges. The rub is, once a decision is made, the exhibition opens or the verdict is read, the public never sees what's been left out. The process itself of curating, of adjudicating, of choosing this but not that, this is also a process of silencing. We've all done this. There's no way to tell a story without leaving something out. We have done it with the story we are telling you. The question is, what are the ramifications of those omissions or suppressions? In Ana Mendieta's case, there were at least two pockets of silence. There was the historical omission of art made by women in museums, and there was the suppression of crucial pieces of evidence in the trial. Both would have an enormous effect on how her art was understood and how people saw her death. I'm your host, Helen Molesworth. From Pushkin Industries, Something Else, and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Death of an Artist. Episode 5, The Silencing. The People versus Andre stretched over two weeks during the winter of 1988. Ironically, Anna Mendieta's first retrospective exhibition at the New Museum was closing just as the trial began. The show had been hastily thrown together by her supporters, and visitors to that show would have seen photographs of her body pressed into the ground, photographs of her stone carvings from Cuba, and her delicate drawings of primordial female forms. At the trial, however, the defense painted a picture of Anna that veered more towards caricature than reality. And I remember they asked me these questions, like, I guess they were trying to establish that she killed herself, like, if this was some sort of, like, culminating art piece that she killed herself, which is ridiculous. 
The strategy started on the very first day when Natalia Delgado took the stand. When Carl's lawyer, Jack Hoffinger, questioned Natalia, he didn't ask about Carl and Anna's relationship. He wanted to talk about Anna's artwork. And they kept talking about impact, body impacting on the earth. And I could see how they could try to make that argument because she would like press herself into the earth or she would like cover herself with mud and stand against a tree. But then her work was about the human body and all sorts of, of things in nature. And it was not at all about impacting on the earth. Carl's lawyers insinuated that the evidence for suicide was Anna's artwork. Hoffinger suggested that her use of blood and earth were signs of an unconscious death wish. Never mind Anna's own explanation of why she used blood, again read by artist Tanya Bruguera. I started immediately using blood, I guess because I think it's a very powerful magical thing. I don't see it as a negative force. For Anna, blood was a way to connect art with everyday life. Blood was real, and using it was a way to make art with the stuff of the world, the stuff of the body, not something fake or pristine. Anna's friends in the courtroom, such as B. Ruby Rich, could see where it was all headed. It was totally blaming the victim, but with an extra twist. It was completely racist. It was constructing an idea of this hot-blooded Latina who drank and misbehaved and, quote, went out a window. It's starting to get ugly, and it's all the uglier because it's such an old move. If you're a defense lawyer defending a murder, you always want to put the, the, the dead person on trial. You always want to dirty up the victim as much as you can. That's Ron Kuby again, the longtime defense lawyer who helped us understand some parts of the trial. What he doesn't say is that when you put the victim on trial, the perpetrator gets to sit silent. And Jack Hoffinger was savvy, a top-notch criminal defense lawyer. His first line of attack? Paint Anna as a drunk. The way that the drinking played into the trial was disturbing. The drinking was pinned on Anna and not pinned on Carl. How do you explain that? They were drinking all night together in the same room, but her corpse gets the blood alcohol test. His living body evidently doesn't. Anna had a blood alcohol level of 0.18, well above the legal limit for driving. Notably, no evidence was submitted about Carl's blood alcohol level. Hoffinger suggested that Anna was so drunk she might have accidentally fallen out the window. A theory that did not account for the significant height of the windowsill, halfway up her body at least, and her well-known fear of heights which her friend Marsha Pels testified to. But seeding doubt was the point. They weren't trying to prove what happened. They were trying to create reasonable doubt. If she was drunk, it could have been an accident. And if it wasn't an accident, then maybe it was a suicide. Here's Lisa Phillips, currently director of the New Museum, who attended the trial when she was a curator at the Whitney. They used every single stereotypical image they could dredge up as some indication that, you know, hot-blooded, tempestuous, that she would throw herself out the window. I don't believe that she committed suicide. That's for sure. The suicide theory was, for Anna's supporters, completely bogus. 
it simply did not jibe with Anna's personality. To further the suicide theory, Hoffinger also focused on Anna's interest in the Afro-Cuban religion Santeria. Remember what her friend Ella Troiano said about her? That she was not a Santera? That she was interested as a scholar, not a practitioner? But Santeria was useful for Carl's case. There are no witches in Santeria, but that didn't stop Carl's lawyers from using the oldest play in the sexist handbook. Basically, wonder out loud about whether or not she's a witch. Carl's attorney, Hoffinger, basically based his analysis of why she might have committed suicide on Santeria, on voodoo. And this was very, very disturbing. Hoffinger knew Anna had named some of her artworks after Afro-Cuban deities, including one called Yemaya. He asked one of her friends about her interest in the deity on the witness stand. The friend said, Yemaya is a deity that takes flight. She was interested in researching it. And in a statement that brought a hush over the courtroom, the witness said, Yemaya takes flight on September 7th. And everyone knew that Anna went out the window on September 8th. Ella Troiano was horrified when she heard this testimony. I think he really hit below the belt when he decided to speak about Yemaya sort of saying that Anna had conceived of her death, saying that she may have done this in the context of her artwork. The reason Ella thinks this is below the belt is not only is it wrong, Yamaya does not take flight, she is a deity connected to the ocean and is often imaged as a mermaid, it's also highly disrespectful. Yamaya, the goddess of motherhood and the ocean, is the highest-ranking female deity in Santeria. Implying that Anna's interest in Yemaya led to a death wish is analogous to wondering if a woman who believes in the Virgin Mary is responsible for her son's death at the hands of others. Coco Fusco, the artist and author of Dangerous Moves, Performance and Politics in Cuba, was also horrified when she heard what was unfolding in the courtroom. I was having conversations with all these different people about the trial, which was very dramatic. I personally did not go to the trial, but what I remember that was particularly upsetting to me was the utterly racist interpretation of her work. This idea that somehow or other, because she had really an anthropological interest in Afro-Cuban religion, that that automatically meant that she was some kind of crazy person involved in voodoo because the Americans didn't differentiate at the time between Santeria and voodoo, even though the roots, African roots of those two religions are entirely different. But they were utilizing stereotypes about voodoo that come from Hollywood musicals, right, about people losing their minds. And that was not the relationship that Andieta had to Santeria, which she studied academically. It was unclear what the judge thought of all this, and that mattered a great deal, as the verdict rested solely on his opinion. But it was clearly upsetting to Anna's friends. They believed in her as an artist. She wasn't experimenting with voodoo or Santeria. She was someone on the cutting edge of performance and land art. 
making gorgeous work about our relationship to the earth, to the land, to ideas of home. She was interested in Stonehenge and Egyptian pyramids and Native American rock carvings. Anna's supporters, even Robert Katz, who attended every day of the trial, were surprised that Carl was allowing Anna to be portrayed as someone who was suicidal or crazy. Of course, for the lawyer, it was a necessity. Here's what Hoffinger said to Robert Katz. He did not encourage any, any, um, any kind of denigration of Anna in any way, shape, or form. He did not want that, and we did our best not to go too far with that. Even though they'd tried not to go too far, Anna's supporters clearly thought they'd sullied Anna's reputation. They'd implied she was a drunk. They'd painted a picture of someone who was unreasonable, hot-headed, and out of control. Someone who was troubled and caused trouble. And part of the reason they were able to describe her this way is precisely because there are no metaphorical mothers in art history, no backdrop of women geniuses to connect her work to. Meanwhile, Carl sat silent. Here's Ella Troiano again. The trial was insulting. Watching Carl sitting there reading during the trial was insulting. The day of closing arguments coincided with the opening day of Carl's exhibition at the Crystal Palace in Madrid, a soaring 19th century pavilion where white cast iron columns deftly hold up a roof and walls made out of glass. The images of the exhibition online look gorgeous. We see Andre's somber metal plates on the floor with all of this light and air above them. It made me wonder about how much of what I love about Carl's work is that he broke the do-not-touch rule. Was he able to break that rule because he thought the rules didn't apply to him? I thought about how much the art world values rule-breakers, and I wondered, on that last day of the trial, if any of the visitors in Madrid were thinking about Carl, who was waiting in the courtroom to see what, if any, rules would apply to him. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. 
And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. On February 11th, 1988, Judge Schlesinger had a verdict. The players assembled. There was Anna's family and friends, a small press contingent, and Carl, still in his workers' overalls, alone, except for his lawyers. When the judge took his bench, the courtroom was silent. The judge said, quote, I have concluded that the evidence has not satisfied me beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant is guilty. Carl Andre had been acquitted. As the courtroom emptied, reporters gathered around Anna's family and listened as Anna's mother said, I know he killed my daughter. Meanwhile, Carl and his lawyer were also surrounded by reporters. Carl's only comment, justice has been served. Carl's lawyer, Jack Hoffinger, later talked to Robert Katz about the outcome. This was a very important case because what it proved was that the system works. Because that system, that trial, protects us against unfair accusations. Every one of us, you, me, everyone else. Carl shared the news of his acquittal with his friends Saul and Carol LeWitt. He called the day he was acquitted. Oh, really? I yes. called, yeah. Uh, oh, you called him? No, he nope. said uh, justice has been done. Uh, I said, I congratulate you. Uh-huh. And that's all. While a civil case requires a preponderance of evidence, criminal trials demand an even higher form of proof. Guilt must be established beyond a reasonable doubt. This means no other plausible explanation can be gleaned from the evidence that makes it to trial. Here's Ron Kuby, the defense lawyer, again. The standard is beyond a reasonable doubt. The problem is most people don't make decisions in their life based on proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Basically, regular people on a jury are used to making decisions based on what they think makes the most sense using the information they have. Whereas a judge is accustomed to using a higher standard of not just reasonable, but beyond a reasonable doubt. And so when you have somebody who the jury is not gonna like, who already looks squirrely because of of what he purveys for a living, and who probably did it, that person is probably going to be convicted. Again, judges tend to apply the beyond a reasonable doubt standard more carefully in a case like this. They recognize this evidence is circumstantial. Judges tend to be more meticulous about what a reasonable doubt is. I for sure understand his point. There's an ethical elegance to reasonable doubt and its presumptions of innocence until proven guilty. My problem is, I have what I consider to be reasonable doubt about Carl Andre's not guilty verdict. And one of the many reasons I'm skeptical is because there is no official record that any of this happened. 
When Carl was acquitted, his trial records were permanently sealed. Not even the Freedom of Information Act can open them. And we tried pretty hard to get these records. But it turns out the only person who can open them is Carl. This means all of the evidence from the 911 call to the Polaroids of the scratches is now gone from public view. All of the case documents in the hands of the police, the DA's office, and in the courts are unattainable to lay people in any fashion whatsoever. Even their existence uh, will not be confirmed. This is how New York State protects those found not guilty. I have a lot of trouble accepting this. None of Carl's friends at the trial to hear what might have happened. Carl never takes the stand and never had to answer a single question publicly. Carl would go more than two decades without saying anything publicly about Anna. Silence was the play, and it worked. Carl Andre is an extremely private person, as you may have guessed. I mean, he doesn't want his photograph taken. You can publicize his works, but you can't talk about his private life with him. He won't talk to you about it. I mean, not for publication, if you know what I mean. He might talk to you if you're a friend, but he doesn't want the world to be. And one of the horrors of this case is that to some extent, his life and her life were publicized, which is not something he wanted to do. That's Carl's lawyer, Jack Hoffinger, again. And it's certainly true that Carl steered clear of the press for a very long time. But when The New Yorker and The New York Times came calling in advance of his big retrospective exhibition, his opposition to discussing his private affairs did not hold. He answered questions, he allowed his photo to be taken, he even appeared in a short video made by the newspaper. But I must say, as I have grown older, my physical capacities have been very much reduced. So I used to be able to sling those timbers around like nothing at all, and and I, I don't want to try nowadays. In the years immediately following the verdict, Anna's supporters spoke openly about the investigation, the trial, and the acquittal. Friends and family spoke to Robert Katz for his book Naked by the Window. And his interviews combined with the fact that he had both seen the documents that were now sealed and had attended every day of the trial, meant Katz was the only person who knew the whole story such as it could be told. When the book came out in 1990, there was a small flurry of press. But even though his book was exhaustively researched, he and a colleague together conducted more than 200 interviews. I've heard more than one art world insider refer to it as, quote, that horrible book. Because it was written in the language of journalism, many people thought it was sensational and unnuanced. He was an outsider who just didn't get it. And being skeptical about the way the book was written meant folks didn't have to grapple with its conclusions. And then life went on. Carl spent time in Europe. He continued to live in the same apartment. He remarried. He showed at the same galleries. He still made art. And his work continued to sell. Plot number 217 is next. This is the Carl Andre, 19 prime rectile. This work from 1977. And let's open this now at 110, $130,000. So while Carl's story might have made some folks uneasy, as a story, as a problem, it moved to the background. There was less and less talk about what happened. And eventually, 
most of Anna's supporters stop talking about Carl and the trial, too. It's like he's been scrubbed from the record. They'd rather talk about her art and her life. They'd rather secure her legacy. And they'd prefer to do so in a context that doesn't include Carl. Who can blame them? Even if, oddly, it contributes to the silence. It wasn't until there was another extremely horrible and very public accusation of spousal murder that the conversation would be reignited. We, the jury in the above entitled action, find the defendant, Orenthal James Simpson, not guilty of the crime of murder. Across the nation and around the world, virtually everyone watched as Judgment Day came swiftly for O.J. Simpson. Remember the Guerrilla Girls? the anonymous group of feminist artists dedicated to calling out the sexism of the art world? The O.J. Simpson acquittal inspired them to make another poster. So we thought, well, let's bring this up again because it really was a related situation. It was clear that something went on between Carl Andre and Anna Mentietta, and she ended up dead, and uh, O.J. too, and both of them got off the hook. That's one of the Guerrilla Girls, They made a poster in 1995 that placed a snapshot of Carl in profile next to a headshot of one of the most famous and celebrated athletes in the world, O.J. Simpson. Emblazoned across the top was the question, what do these men have in common? What do these men have in common? Every 15 seconds, another woman is assaulted by her husband or boyfriend. Some of these assaults end in murder. Usually, there are no eyewitnesses to these crimes. Unlike their other posters, there was no humor, no sly commentary, nothing to ameliorate the pain. There was something very stark about seeing Carl's face right next to O.J.'s. The comparison was undeniable, and it seemed to puncture any exceptionalism the art world was banking on for itself. These would have gone up around Soho and in the East Village, where there were a lot of artists living and a lot of fledgling galleries. The Guerrilla Girls were directly linking Anna's death to the increasing awareness of domestic violence, an issue that had just begun to be part of a public conversation. The O.J. Simpson trial was on TV all the time, and the story of domestic violence and domestic violence homicides went from the back page to the front page. This is Esther Soler, one of the women behind the 1994 Violence Against Women Act the first bill to fully address domestic violence. She worked the halls of Congress hard in the 1980s and had to endure one congressman calling it the, quote, Take Fun Out of Marriage Act. And people started really talking about the fact that so many other women were victims of domestic violence and people were given license to come out and talk about it more as well because it was such a public narrative. Before O.J., Esther practically had to beg newspapers and news outlets to write about domestic violence. Now, her phone was ringing off the hook. It was absolutely clear he was guilty. The court said he was innocent. And I've spent a lot of time with Nicole's family, and they don't think he's innocent at all. Whatever the court said, the trial nevertheless put domestic violence and spousal homicide front and center. The trial and the story was transformative in terms of how the U.S. 
world really saw the issue of domestic violence. It, 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 again, it really took on, oh my God, this is really a serious problem. It was a turning point. The issue went from the privacy to the public sphere pretty dramatically. The Guerrilla Girls suggested that Anna's story wasn't merely a unique instance, depending on how you saw it, of a drunken accident, suicide, or an argument gone wrong. Anna's story was part of a much larger social problem. More than 90% of women who are murdered are killed by someone they know. The perpetrators are often their husbands, boyfriends, or exes. But the awareness of domestic violence as an issue was just starting to be named as a problem when Anna died. Early on in, in the 80s and the late 70s, women were being beaten and battered, and most People didn't know about it. It was private. It was silent. It was hidden. And more than that, more than that, they were often blamed for what happened to them. So it was a combination of feeling invisible and also responsible. Before Nicole Brown Simpson's death made domestic violence visible, it was typically considered a private matter. And because it was private, it was not to be spoken about publicly. This silence almost always benefited the aggressor rather than the victim. And while O.J. wasn't convicted, because of this visibility, he suffered consequences Carl did not. He lost his endorsements. His television and movie appearances evaporated. He was effectively shunned. The art world took no such extrajudicial measures. If you look at Carl's resume, easily available on his personal website, you'll find that he has exhibited, often multiple times, every single year since 1985. His shows were reviewed in the New York Times. And then, in 2011, he landed a coveted profile in The New Yorker. It felt like an attempt to revise his reputation before he got the biggest feather in any artist's cap, a major museum retrospective. And it was in the New Yorker profile where he finally broke his silence and offered the following version of what happened that night. Here's what he said, read by a voice actor. I was asleep. I was in bed. And when I heard cries of no, 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 uh, it had been quite balmy, like 80 degrees. And the temperature went down to about 60 all of a sudden. Uh, what Anna did was to get up and start closing the windows because cold air was blowing in, um, Anna had to climb up. She was, you know, barely five feet. Uh, to close those windows, you had to do it from the middle so they wouldn't jam. Uh, and in trying to close those windows, um, she just lost her balance. This is Carl's fourth version of what happened. And it's entirely different from the previous versions. Is it really any wonder that so many people still don't believe him? An artist named Elise Rasmussen even researched the story and checked the weather for September 8th, 1985. No big temperature drop occurred. Was the power structure of the art world really deaf to the protests of so many women? Did white men hold so much power that they can continually change their story and still expect everyone to take their word for it? 
Did Carl's calling it an accident after 20 years somehow make the art world think that it was outside of or above the problem of domestic violence? Did we think we were that different from everyone else? Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC, Copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Yeah, so you have an NDA. I do. Okay. Dr. Kelly Morgan is a scholar-turned-curator who also had a dramatic departure from her job. I wanted to talk to her because she and I had pretty much opposite instincts about how to handle things. When it all went down for me in 2018, my first instinct was silence. And that was pretty much the only thing me and the museum agreed upon. Hence, the NDA which, for those listeners without one, is a non-disclosure agreement. Another method of procuring silence. What do you think breaking your silence would mean having the power that you have in the field and the reverence that you have in the field? Um, part of my silence in the wake of being fired was I didn't know how to actually tell the story. Mm -hmm. And Part of it is fear that people would come at me in a variety of ways, financial or reputational. My first worry was money. How would I pay my bills? As for the reputational stuff, I knew what could happen to strong-willed women in the press. Kelly also felt the fear, but silence was not her play. I asked her to tell me what happened that led up to her dramatic exit from the Newfields Museum in Indiana. 
It was a lot of things, but the tipping point came at an acquisitions meeting, the meeting during which the curators present works of art that they think are good enough to display and save. In these meetings, curators typically make a deeply researched presentation on the artist's work to a committee of collectors and philanthropists, whose job it is, is to provide the funds for the purchase. So we get to this meeting. The vase has Colin Kaepernick on one side, John Brown on the other side. It's called the expulsion of Colin Kaepernick. And we're discussing it. And we have a very, like a high-level donor. And he just goes on this rant about, you know, Colin Kaepernick was wrong and African-Americans don't use their money correctly. And just like all of the racist neoliberal capitalist bullshit. So I get up and walk out of the room. And then the subsequent response, you know, from leadership, because he was such a high-level donor, was that I had just acted unprofessionally. In two decades of museum work, I have never seen a curator walk out of a meeting with trustees. I can't lie. I kind of wish I had been there to watch Kelly's rebellion. Ultimately, she decided that walking out wasn't enough. So she wrote an essay about racism in art museums. The essay pretty much discusses the nature of white supremacy culture as I've experienced it in art museums. And then, before she could get fired, she sent her boss, as well as all of her colleagues and the local press, a scathing resignation letter that called out the racism she'd been experiencing on the daily. I went to the press because I was just kind of sick and tired, (laughs) you know, of how bad things were going. And it was something that happens to all museum professionals to some degree, whether it's class discrimination, gender discrimination, racial, you know, sexual discrimination. There's a history, there's a tradition. And I kept thinking that eventually I would get some like cease and desist letter. She never did get a cease and desist, but what did come was a barrage of casual slander and some very real death threats. And there's a very prominent arts leader who has no problem, you know, telling anybody, like at a party or a dinner or like, you know, on a Zoom call or whatever, that he feels like I deserve to be shot in the face. And I've had several people call and say, are you aware, <laughs> you know, that this person is like saying this stuff for us? And yeah, I'm, I'm, I know. I envy Kelly's courage and ability to speak freely about her experience, though it pains me deeply that she has such stories to tell. We all know that speaking up has real consequences. It's why so many victims of domestic violence stay quiet. It's why the Guerrilla Girls are anonymous. But there's a difference between those who are silenced and those who choose to stay silent. And by now it's clear that the silence that galls me the most is Carl Andres. He didn't take the stand. He didn't provide an explanation to Anna's family or her friends. He had no words for the community he was such a prominent member of, a community torn apart by what happened. The records of the trial were permanently sealed. And according to Robert Katz, the strategy was to maintain this silence moving forward. Toward the end of Naked by the Window, he wrote, quote, Sometime after the trial, a meeting was held at the Paula Cooper Gallery, where it was decided that no one among the participants would ever again 
speak of the case. So in a last-ditch effort to see if we could crack the wall of silence, my producer suggested we go to Carl Andre's apartment to see if he'd talk to us face-to-face. It's a huge building. And it's a good 15 floors higher than any other building. Yes, it's around much here. taller than its neighbors. It's really disturbing how high it is. All right, revolving door. Here we go. Hi, how are you? Yeah, how can I help you? That's next time on Death of an Artist. Death of an Artist is a co-production between Pushkin Industries, Something Else, and Sony Music Entertainment. Written and hosted by me, Helen Molesworth. Executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs, Tom Koenig, Tal Malad, Jacob Weisberg, and Lucas Werner. Produced by Maria Luisa Tucker. Editing by Lizzie Jacobs. Our managing producer is Jacob Smith. Associate producers are Pooj Rue and Eloise Linton. Additional production help by Tally Abacassis. Voice acting by Nick Barame. Ana Mendieta's quotes were read by Tanya Bruguera, engineered by Sam Baer. Fact-checking by Andrea Lopez Cruzado. Our theme song is by Pooj Rue. If you love this show, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus to listen early, ad-free, and get exclusive bonus content. Look for the Pushkin Plus channel on Apple Podcasts or at pushkin.fm. Find more great podcasts from Sony Music Entertainment at sonymusic.com backslash podcasts.